This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in the show, there are 219,000 women in prison in the United States. Rachel Kushner's new novel, The Mars Room, is a story about one of them. She'll be in studio to talk about it. First up, Trump isn't stupid. That's what Yanis Varoufakis says after reviewing Trump's growing confrontation with Europe. Trump Watch starts right now. Now it's time to talk with Yanis Varoufakis. He's the former finance minister of Greece who took office in 2015 after five years of debt crisis and economic and social decline had left half the country's young people unemployed. Greece at that point elected the most radical coalition to govern a European country in decades, and Giannis became a European-wide celebrity when he resisted the demands of Europe's bankers for austerity as Greece held out for restructuring its debt. But then the government submitted and Giannis left office. Now he has co-founded an international grassroots movement that is campaigning for the revival of democracy in Europe. He's taught for many years in the United States, Britain, and Australia, and he's currently professor of economics at the University of Athens. He's written many books, most recently, Adults in the Room and Talking to My Daughter About the Economy or How Capitalism Works and How It Fails. I spoke with him recently in Los Angeles. We all feel there's something the matter here, and most of us would say it's Donald Trump, but you say Trump is only a symptom. A symptom of what? A symptom of the failure of the liberal establishment after the major financial crisis of 2008 to reignite investment in good quality jobs across the West. Not just good quality jobs, but investment more generally in fixed capital in things that actually produce stuff. That monumental failure resembles very much the failures of uh, global capitalism and U.S. capitalism after 1929. But at least after 1929, soon after that, you had the New Deal in 1933. We haven't had the New Deal. What we have had instead is the refloating, very effective and brutal refloating of the financial sector through the quantitative easing programs of the various central banks, the money printing of the central banks, that created a semblance of stability and recovery without having created the investment in the things that make people feel that there is a future for them. You uh, met Obama. You talked to Obama. Tell us about that. It was a a very interesting conversation. Um, It began with him inviting me and inciting me to compromise in my dealings with the creditors. Uh, From a sympathetic perspective, he started by saying that I was right, that what we needed to do was indeed a debt restructure and the end of austerity. He himself, when we were elected, the day we were elected or the day after, came out with a very helpful statement. He said that uh, enough austerity for Greece. Uh, you cannot keep squeezing a population like that. We were overjoyed to hear that. So he, he repeated that, but at the same time he said that he, he, that he thought we should compromise. And I responded by saying, Mr. President, I wake up in the morning and go to bed at night dreaming of compromise, but I'm not going to be compromised on the one thing that matters, as you said, debt restructuring. He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and then he tried to, to, to bring me to his experience to say, look, when I got elected, 
I had to drink a glass of political poison by saving the Wall Street bankers. Not, not something I wanted to do, but I had to do it. Effectively, he was saying, in the same way he compromised and that he felt helpless, I should also compromise and, and, and water down many of my aspirations. To which I responded and I said, but at least, Mr. President, you had your central bank backing you every step of the way. I did not challenge him. I didn't talk to him about reinstating Larry Summers and Tim Geithner, which I could have done, but it was not my job as a minister of finance of the most bankrupt country that was trying to elicit support from the most powerful politician in the world. Uh, and, and so I tried to flatter, them, flatter him by telling him the truth as well, that yes, you compromised and, and you had a lot of constraints you were working under, but you had the Fed backing you every step of the way, whereas I have a central bank that is trying to stab me in the back every step of the way. So I had this interesting conversation, and what transpired in that discussion behind closed doors was that the Obama administration had a very simple position. We were right. They would do nothing to help us because we belong to the German sphere of influence when it came to finance and economic policy. But they would back us geopolitically um, in the, the, the sense of uh, uh, providing us with an umbrella within NATO in the instability of that part of the world, especially Ukraine, Turkey, Libya, Syria, and so on and so forth. So, effect, effectively, they were w washing their hands of us w uh, regarding the euro, regarding the relationship with the European Central Bank, as long as we remain within NATO, they wouldn't mind us getting out of the euro. They would not help us not to get out of the euro or get out of the euro, but they would make this clear distinction, American hegemony when it comes to geopolitics, German hegemony when it comes to finance. So Obama wouldn't challenge German hegemony, but Trump in the last couple of weeks has directly told Germany that if they don't abide, if they don't join in the new sanctions against Iran, the United States will institute a secondary boycott of German banks and industry. This give you any kind of uh, satisfaction? No, it doesn't. Trump is a smart man. We, you know, the, the, the Democrats in this country demonize him. He's a demon, but it's not right for the Democrats to, to paint him as a fool. He understands something that is absolutely pertinent. He understands that Germany is very vulnerable because it has a huge surplus, a trade surplus, to the United States and to the rest of the world. And if you have a huge trade surplus, you are susceptible to a trade war. And you've got a lot more to lose from a trade war than somebody who has a deficit. Now, of course, the... There may be a mutual disadvantage as a result of this trade war, but the relative costs are much greater for Germany, and he understands that, and he also wants to divide the Europeans. So he's hugging Macron and the French, because the French, as Macron said very recently, they don't have a trade surplus with the United States, so they are not vulnerable the way that Germany is. So what Trump is doing is he's trying out a, 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 a tactic of shock and awe, uh, he's trying to shock the Chinese and the, and the Germans, the surplus countries, into feeling completely uncertain and desperate in their dealings with him in order to, at some point, present them with the kind of deal that he wants to present them. The Iran affair has nothing to do with nuclear weapons. It's got nothing to do with even with Israel. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with peace or war in the Middle East, even though it will destabilize the Middle East. 
it is his way of rubbing Angela Merkel's nose in her own powerlessness. Mm-hmm. Angela Merkel came out and said that she was going to defend the Iran deal and Europe will not pull away from it just because the United States is. But already all the corporations, the German corporations that do business in Iran, have already announced that, and for the French ones, that they're going to pull out because they do not want to lose access to the financial system of the United States and to, the, to, 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 to their business interests. In, uh, in, in America, there are 4,800 German companies doing business in, in, in the United States. So Trump has the carrot and the stick. The carrot is the tax cuts, the corporate tax cuts that he's given them. And the stick is, if you go to Iran, you're not getting them. And Merkel is a, a bystander. Sad, suddenly she feels the depth of her irrelevance. And Trump luxuriates in that. You are now setting out on a program, not just for Greece, but for all of Europe, focusing on 2025, the DM 25 parties and movements. Tell us about that. Well, we, DiEM25, the Democracy in Europe movement, was inaugurated in February 2016 in Berlin for a very simple reason. Those of us who put it together uh, decided that what really matters is a, a pan-European answer to the European systemic crisis. We need a systematic European answer. Uh, that's something that has never been tried before mm. by the European Commission, the European Parliament. They've all treated the Greek crisis as a Greek crisis, the Italian crisis, and that, never as a European crisis. Uh, so we, we created a pan-European movement. We have tens of thousands of members across Europe, uh, 100,000 members, which is not that much, but it's, it's significant. We have worked for two years to present our uh, economic policy framework, which, which we call the European New Deal. It's, I think it's a very uh, legitimate, moderate and useful document uh, that changes the policy discussion as to what needs to be done across Europe. Uh, and very recently, we made a very big, took a very important step. We decided that we're going to run in the May 2019 European Parliament election. So we've gone into bed, so to speak, proverbially, with a number of movements and um, like-minded uh, political parties. And we create, DiEM25 has created a transnational political party, which has only been announced very recently. It's called the European Spring. Uh, so let me give you an example. It involves the Generation movement in France, led by Benoit Hamon, the French Greens, uh, RASM, a, a very progressive feminist political party in Poland, the Alternative, the third largest party in, in Denmark. We are setting up, we set up a new party in Greece, Mera 25, Mera means DiEM in Greek, to, to bring hope back to this devastated country. And I'm leading that party in Greece. In the next few days, we are setting up a new Italian party led by the mayor of Napoli, Luigi de Magistris. We have Livre in Portugal. Uh, we have other parties in Slovenia, in Croatia. This has never happened before. And what is exciting? Is, let me give you uh, just a snippet of that which excites us. Take, for instance, our political program in Greece. It has been voted by all our members across Europe. So you have Germans and French and Irish and British members of DiEM voting for the economic policies that our Greek party is going to pursue in Greece. And we were doing this in all jurisdictions. So it's a, the first proper transnational party, I think, in Europe, probably in the world. And we're going to run in May 2019 with a primary objective of changing the conversation. Tell us a little bit more about the program of this uh, European New Deal. For instance, how does it compare to what Bernie Sanders has been talking about? 
brilliantly, it's along the same lines of thinking. We also have a very close connection across the Atlantic because it is crucial that progressives in America and progressives in, in Europe coordinate our policies. So, for instance, with Jamie Galbraith, uh, with Stephanie Kelton, who work for uh, Sanders, we're in constant dialogue and our ideas are bouncing off one another and we are along the same lines. In, in the United States, you have the privilege and the luxury of having insti federal institutions which can easily enact uh, another New Deal. In Europe, we have to simulate those institutions and this, this has been the technically difficult aspect and what I think is the achievement of the M25 and the European New Deal proposals, how to take existing institutions that are very fragmented and they are not part of the federal system and make them behave as if they are part of the federation because unless they do this and we stabilize Europe, there will be no federation in Europe. We will have complete fragmentation and devastation. Well, good luck in 2019 and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk with Rachel Kushner. She's the author of the amazing novel The Flamethrowers. It was a bestseller and a finalist for the National Book Award. We talked with her about it here. Her debut novel, Telex from Cuba, was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times Book Review, and her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, and The Paris Review. Her new novel is The Mars Room. Rachel Kushner, welcome back. Thanks, John. There are 219,000 women in prison in the United States. The Mars Room is a story about one of them. It's 2003, and Romy Hall, 20 years old and white, is serving two life terms plus six years at Stanville Women's Prison in California's Central Valley. It's the largest women's prison in the world. She killed the creep who was stalking her. She left behind a seven-year-old son. Her mother is taking care of him now. Uh, Rachel, people who know what prison is like on the inside say your account is utterly convincing. A friend wrote me that he had found a story in The New Yorker by someone named Kushner who has a perfect ear for prison and the life around it. How did you do this? How come you know so much about women's prisons and women prisoners? Did you do research? I, I think it's a combination of factors. Um, in this case, specifically, the structural conditions of prison are a world that I did commit myself to understanding, not so much as a novelist, but just a person and citizen of California and someone who was interested in the way that the society is layered and structured. And I wanted to know why some people end up kind of inducted into the criminal justice system and others are not touched by it really in any way. And in fact, it sort of remains invisible to them. So I embarked on a project of getting to know people who were serving life sentences in a prison called Central California Women's Facility. Um, my prison, Stanville, in the book is a, you know, is a fictional place, but it shares certain characteristics with the 
CCWF, which is based in Churchill, and I went there regularly as a volunteer with a wonderful human rights organization called Justice Now and started getting to know people. Um, But I had also grown up with a couple of people who went to prison. It wasn't a completely foreign territory for me. And in addition, one last thing, I think that was a huge immersion for me, but of a very different kind than working with Justice Now. I went on a tour with criminology students, a bus tour up and down the state of California to, I believe, 12 men's facilities, one women's facility, and a uh, reentry place, um, Delancey Street, famous place in San Francisco. But the men's facilities that we went to, we, we were there under a kind of like unique guise, which was that the students were being greeted and introduced to the world of working for the Department of Corrections because many of them would go on to be hired by the state. And I was there undercover, and we were spoken to as insiders. In other words, we were spoken to by corrections officers as if they were with their own kind and could, you know, no pun intended, let their guard down (laughs) and share openly their feelings about their jobs and about their charges. And we were allowed to wander around on yards and go into people's cells and talk to them. And that's quite unusual. And so I was able to see for myself what prisons look like. I can't claim to know what it feels like to be incarcerated. I mean, and I just wouldn't do that. But I was immersed and exposed. I don't know much about prisoners convicted of violent crimes. I have the standard left liberal view. Most of them never had a chance. They never had a decent childhood. They never had parents who took care of them. We hear a lot about wrongful convictions of people in prison for serious crimes, people who are actually innocent. We hear about cops lie, the DAs cover up for the cops, but your women are not innocent victims of police lies. And I thought a lot of the women in prison were there not because they did horrible things, but because they had boyfriends who did. They drove the getaway car for the bad boyfriend. In fact, this comes up in the the first chapter. They carried the drugs for the bad boyfriend. They hid the bad boyfriend's gun. But that's not really true of of the women in your book, especially Romy. Romy is not innocent. No, she isn't. And um, you do hear a lot about wrongful convictions and um, cops and DAs lying. And However, I'm interested in the truth. And I'm also interested in standing up for people who have not been given much of a voice in our society. And the fact of the matter is, from my perspective, those people don't have a voice, A, and B, Most of the time, they have done the thing of which they were convicted, but that doesn't mean I can't have sympathy for those people because Mm -hmm. I don't think I'm in a position to judge other people that have not had my own experiences or the certain like societal advantages that I've been given because I'm middle class. In California, as the statistics go from multiple sources, 90% of people filling the state prisons have been convicted of what the state considers, in their language, serious violent felonies. So in order to advocate for the actual people who've been thrown away by our society, I believe that one, in this case me, needs to advocate 
for the so-called guilty and not for the very rare and actually quite small percentage of people who liberals could reinterpret as relatively innocent. We care so much about Romy and what's happening to her and what happens to her is really terrible. The most terrible part comes when Romy is told that her mother's been killed in a car accident and this means there's nobody to take care of her young son and he apparently will be taken away and adopted by unknown people. And the most infuriating thing in the book is the response of the prison staff to Romy seeking help for her in finding her young son and finding out what's happening to him. They tell her, your situation is due 100% to the choices you made and the actions you took. Well, how about the lifetime of bad things that happened to her that she did not choose? But even as I wrote that, I felt a certain sympathy for the woman who works as a correctional officer because I've been around those people a lot. And they themselves are working class people, usually from these rural communities in the Central Valley. The only education you need to be hired by the California Department of Corrections as a guard is a GED, you know, an equivalency exam. And you can get paid an almost middle class salary to work in that environment. But the cost of it for the person psychologically, I believe, is absolutely enormous. Those are really stressful jobs. They have a very high rate of depression and suicide. And I can see, or at least I believe I can see, a kind of brittle carapace that the guard takes on in order to justify what Mm -hmm. they have to assist in enforcing. And so they tell themselves that it's okay that these women have been separated from their children. Um, There's a scene in the book where the character Gordon Hauser asks a guard if it's hard to watch the women and children saying goodbye to each other for those who are lucky enough to get family visiting. And um, that was a question that I asked a guard in the women's facility. And she said, you grow a thick skin and they are in that situation because they deserve it, because this is these are choices they made. And I knew that she didn't really believe that underneath yeah. what she said. I mean, she's literally standing there on the sidewalk in Chowchilla while children are screaming and crying and mm-hmm. hugging the legs of their mothers. I know it's brutal, but, um, you know, and thinking into this and writing about it, I'm not interested in isolating, you know, in locating and naming villains. I don't really believe that that's how the society works. If there were good and evil structuring things, we probably could have found solutions a long time ago. It's more complicated that. And all the people in the book are people to me with complexity and nuance. Well, of course, the challenge in writing this story is to have something other than misery and suffering and horrible crying children. Yeah. And thank God you succeeded at finding plenty of this. But please, please explain how you did it. Sure. I mean, I don't know exactly how I did that, but I do feel that I um, the thing I'm most proud of about the book is the comedy and the vitality in it, which don't feel like they take away from the horror. They don't dissipate any of the pressure of the world that I attempt to render. 
it's more like I felt all the way along, even before I started writing the book, I knew from my own experiences of knowing people that people are full of humor and vitality and the capacity to make light of a situation, to bring something darkly funny and poignant to it, and that if I wasn't doing that in my writing, that that it was going to be a failed project. Um, and people are funny in prison. I mean, they're they have a kind of brilliance that's actually rather unique, and I, th- I have a new theory about it, which is that they are in such close quarters with one another, and they've been stripped of all of these manners of identity formation, like what Irving Goffman would call your identity kit, and what they have as currency is their personalities, which is to say their ability to seduce and charm and intimidate and threaten and to perform So I wanted to evoke that. Tell us about Justice Now. Well, Justice Now is an incredible organization with a quite unique foundational history, I would say, from what I know about it. Um, There's a lawyer named Cynthia Chandler who's based in Oakland who was working with some uh, long-termers, lifers at Chochilla. And she got the idea to start an organization whose leaders would be primarily made up of women or people in the women's prisons serving long sentences. And she went to people in prison and she said, not bring me people who are interested in human rights and documenting human rights abuses, which is the the work of Justice Now. Instead, she said, bring me people in the prison who are shock callers, who have enormous social power in the prison. Mm. And those are the founding board members of Justice Now are these really cool, very tough, very respected people who've been in prison for a long time and are looked up to by their peers. And they were taught human rights law and they were taught how to teach it to other people and how to document abuses. And they do this incredible work. And the president of Justice Now right now is a person named Michael Concepcion, who is a lifer in Chowchilla and a good friend of mine. And he is a trans person who leads this organization from inside the prison, which is how can you not be on board with that? It gives people, I think, an incredible sense of purpose. And they've done some great work. They got legislation passed in California that makes it illegal to sterilize women without their consent, which is something that had been happening, believe it or not, in California prisons. So they do ongoing daily work, and they also have had some very monumental successes. One last thing. Rachel Kushner, are you related to Jared Kushner? I am not related to Jared Kushner, although I did ideate on what I thought would be the comedy of pretending that we are cousins and referring to that family as our trash Jersey kin. (laughs) And my husband calls him Cousin Jared and recently emailed me after Jared got his um, security clearance downgraded. Cousin Jared is in deep shit. The book is The Mars Room, a novel. The author is Rachel Kushner. Rachel, thanks for this book, and thanks so much for coming in today. Thanks for having me, John. Well, 
Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. <laughs>